Hello, and welcome to this FRDH, First Rough Draft of History podcast. I'm Michael Goldfarb. A little over a year ago, I interviewed Robin Lustig, a veteran of 40-plus years of writing First Rough Drafts of History, as a reporter in the Middle East, and then as the presenter of two BBC flagship news programs, NewsHour on World Service and The World Tonight on Radio 4. We sat on a bench near Parliament, watching the Thames flow, and looked back and looked forward. I've wanted to check back in with Robin for a while, but the pandemic kept interfering. Finally, I realized a face-to-face encounter was not on the cards this year, so we chatted via Internet, which explains the difference in background sound in the conversation that follows. But before we get there, the commercial. If you like what you hear at FRDH, please, at the season of giving, go to the website www.goldfarbpod.com and make a donation to help me keep the podcast going through 2021. I began my conversation with Robin Lustig by confessing a feeling that probably many of you have had this year, confusion about what is really going on in the world. You know, I'm at such a, a distance. I feel like, what is real? What is real? Yes, I think that I think that is an issue. I mean, the other issue is that we know from experience that what we are told from government is either partial truth or a best guess. And when it comes to statistics, whether it's on the incidence of COVID or whether it's on a rollout of test and trace or whatever it is, the numbers are not reliable because the systems aren't reliable. and so you're right. I mean, we, we, we simply don't know what to believe. Was there a moment this year? I, I, I remember we were, we, were all, we were both pretty calm. We sort of knew what was going to happen. We were sitting in Victoria Tower Gardens on a, on a very lovely autumn day. We were watching the tide come in on the Thames. Tide was coming in. There's a, there's a metaphor, and we knew what was going to happen. That there would be Brexit eventually, and it would be an unholy mess, and so it's proven. And there was likely to be an election, and the Conservatives would win, and so it is proven. And yet we come to this point a year later, and nothing that we might have guessed has turned out to be the way it is. I had my epiphany in 2016. I mean, I didn't think the Brexit referendum would go the way it did, and I didn't think Donald Trump would be elected. And once those two things happened, I realized that the gap between what I thought I understood about the world and what was actually happening in bits of the world, you know, just a little bit removed from where I am, was just vast, far, far vaster than I had imagined. Now, that's partly to do with the fact that I am no longer a working journalist, and so I'm, you know, I am at one remove. But still, I, you know, I thought I had some idea of what made the world tick, and um, I was wrong. Obviously, what none of us could predict was the uh, pandemic. And, and the thing that struck me about the pandemic was of all the, the kind of major world stories that, that have happened during my time as a journalist, this one has actually affected me personally in my everyday life in a way that no other story has. You know, Gulf Wars can come and go, 9-11s can come and go, terrorist attacks can come and go. They affect me on the periphery like security checks at airports and all that sort of stuff. But by and large, I carry on with my life. But this 
has changed my life, you know, beyond uh, beyond anything else. I, I, I confess to having had, you know, guilty moments during the last year when I felt I miss the days when I went to Iraq or some some place that was in utter crisis and could could report and tell people what was going on and, and encourage them to an empathic understanding of a tragedy. And I, I kind of longed for those days because now we're in the crosshairs. I think that's right. I, I do think that's right. I mean, largely what we do as reporters, as you say, is we go to somewhere else, we talk to other people and we report something, as it were, looking through a window. Um, it's fairly unusual that we as reporters from developed Western economies are personally involved. I mean, obviously, some reporters find themselves in the middle of an earthquake or in the middle of some natural disaster and they report personally. But uh, if you're not living in a country like Iraq or Libya or wherever it might be, then as a reporter, you're always slightly looking in from the outside. And that's not a bad thing necessarily, but um, this has been different. You know, I actually find every time one of our children says, you know, should we come over? I kind of think to myself, do I, do I want to run this risk? Have you been surprised at the gross ineptitude of the British government in handling this crisis? Well, I always knew, uh, you know, that Johnson was a charlatan and not uh, an effective or serious uh, what's the word? Administrator. I mean, his record as mayor of London was, was was clear evidence of that. I think once he appointed his cabinet and we saw what a bunch of non-entities they were, with one or two exceptions, uh, it was fairly clear that this was not going to be a stellar government. But it, I, it was only when the, the epidemic started that we realised quite how in what's the word, the opposite of apt, uh, inapt they were for the task that they faced. On the other hand, I mean, I don't know if you, it looks to you the same way, but there are very few governments around the world, with the possible exception of New Zealand, where one can say they got it right, right from the start. I mean, the French, the Germans, the Italians, the Spanish, uh, the Canadians, the Swedes, I mean, wherever you look, they've all made mistakes. It's just that we've made more mistakes. The thing that fries me more than anything about this lot is the naked corruption. For years, as an outsider, the one thing journal, my my English colleagues would say when you know I had to do a political story for NPR, for example, about some goings on at Parliament, was that Britain was the least corrupt of countries, and. When one sees the procurement procedures, procurement of PPE equipment to letting out contracts for everything, just about, you know, it's one degree of separation. If you've got a friend round the cabinet table, I mean, th those are levels of corruption that you know you or I might have gone down to Palermo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's absolutely right. That, that is the exact parallel. It's exactly that. And I mean, I was really quite shamed to see uh, the New York Times running a big story about this 
it, it's it's shameful. And as you say, I mean, until relatively recently, Britain had a reputation for being not immune, but much less prone to this kind of stuff than, than a lot of other places. And um, the cronyism of this government is simply way off the scale, far beyond, I think, anything that we've seen before. I mean, it's always been the case, hasn't it, that government, that ministers sort of appoint people that they know up to a certain point. But the scale of this is just mind-boggling. Have you been able to stay in touch with other stories this year? That's the other thing. News sources that I rely on here, there's two stories. It's COVID and it's Brexit and it's COVID and it's Brexit. And I wake up in the morning and I think, is there still a civil war in Syria? Apparently so. And what the, what the hell is going on in Libya? Because we're coming on, you know, to the 10th anniversary of the Arab Spring and the overthrow of Gaddafi. It might be a time to sort of be reminded of what's happening in Libya. We never see this news. No, I mean, it, it, it's there in the margins if you look carefully for it. I mean, a story that I've sort of noticed just in my peripheral vision is, you know, Ethiopia, Eritrea. Um, there's been all kinds of things going on there, which are really quite serious. And yet it, it simply hasn't cut through at all. I mean, you're right. I mean, it's, it's COVID. Brexit disappeared until about a month ago because we had Trump. I mean, for the last six months, I would say, at least, I certainly have been completely obsessed with the 3rd of November. And then, of course, as we knew it would, it extended beyond the 3rd of November. And it's not even over yet. You know, we, we still, I, I still, the first thing I do in the morning when I wake up is go onto Twitter and have a look to see what the President of the United States has been tweeting while I've been asleep. It's funny you should say, first thing I do is I log on to Twitter. I can remember the days when the first thing I did in the new era of internet was log on to the New York Times and then a couple of British papers. And I had a summary of the headlines. Those days are gone, aren't they? Do you know, um, when was it? Two or three nights ago when Bill Barr quit, I saw it first on Twitter from a source that I didn't really trust. So I immediately went to the New York Times and Washington Post websites. There was nothing on either of them. I went to the BBC website. There was nothing there. And then I, I started delving a bit further into Twitter and more and more people on Twitter were reporting that Bill Barr had quit. But it probably took maybe 30 minutes for the New York Times and Washington Post websites to catch up with Twitter. And that's quite serious now in this day and age, isn't it? It is. It is. And, and at one level, you think, oh, my God. On the other hand, I'm glad that there's some kind of verification processes still in place at outlets like The Washington Post, New York Times or BBC. But a half hour, that's, that's not enough time to verify. So there you go. It, it's one of the big problems. And it also has to goes back to my earlier questions about what is real, what's reality. You know, this, we're in this point now where if you if someone like you is Twitter first and then still has enough knowledge of how things go to say, I question this tweet. Oh, I got caught just the other day. Yeah. I retweeted something that uh, I had seen from a fellow journalist, somebody I knew and trusted about uh, the suicide rate since uh, the pandemic struck. And I just retweeted it because I thought it was uh, something that needed to be borne in mind. 
And I was soon getting pushback from people saying that, that these figures are wrong. I don't know where you're getting these figures from. You know, what's your source? So I started doing a bit of delving and it turns out that this is an old sort of online myth that the suicide rate has rocketed since last March. And I had to both delete the tweet, apologize for having misled people. Uh, and among the people who, alas, had retweeted my retweet was Jonathan Friedland, who has, you know, X hundred thousand followers. Um, and he had to do the same. And there we are, you know, highly experienced professional journalists still getting caught out. And it's a big, big problem. And I, I don't know, I really don't know what, what the answer to it is, except, you know, the kind of education of people who use Twitter, that everything you see here, no matter how true it seems, you need to, as they used to say in Watergate movies, get it from a second source. I mean, I, um, I was due to give a talk to a school recently, uh, which was cancelled at the last minute, on the subject, on precisely this subject, on trying to teach kids how to use social media responsibly. And I found myself planning to say things, you know, like what you've just said, check it, think again, uh, look at how trustworthy you believe the source of this is. This isn't how people behave. You know, Twitter is an online gossip site. And when somebody gossips in the school playground or over the garden fence or in the pub, you don't stop them, say, just hang on a second. What's your source for that? You know, can I get a second source? It's gossip. And but the trouble with Twitter is it's global gossip and it's billions of people. So anyway, here we are in the season of good cheer. And I'm just wondering, given how we knew but couldn't have imagined what this year would be, if you want to hazard a guess as to, you know, what the fallout from the extraordinary dislocations that happened between in this country because of the pandemic in America, because of the pandemic, and then, you know, the continuing saga that, as you said, started in 2016 when we had these twin black swan events, Brexit followed by the election of Trump. And these have been absolutely game-changing events for Anglo-American society. And I just wonder if you would want to hazard a guess as to how 2021 is going to play out with, you know, the ongoing ructions from those events plus the pandemic. <laughs> I mean, I, I think the, the biggest lesson I've learned from the events of 2016 is how foolish it is to try to predict anything. You know, if we had been talking 12 months ago, we would not have predicted a global pandemic which would have killed hundreds of thousands of people and disrupted every single person's life in some way or another. I'll tell you what my hopes are. My hopes are that the vaccine will be rolled out effectively and efficiently and will do what we want it to do, which is pretty much stop the pandemic in its tracks within the next, what, six to eight months. My hope is that um, Western economies will not collapse completely and millions of people thrown out of work. Uh, my hope is that the things that I enjoy doing most, um, going to the theatre, going to the cinema, going to art galleries, going to restaurants with friends, will all become possible again. But I have to say, uh, my confidence is at a fairly low level on all of those things. I, I suspect that 
great swathes of the economy won't recover. I mean, retail, for example, department stores. Um, I look at what might happen to the car manufacturing sector in the UK. You already see Japanese car manufacturers saying, well, we can't risk building our cars anymore in the UK because we just don't know what the post-Brexit world will look like for import and export. There are so many uncertainties. I was listening to somebody the other day talking about how British farmers were relatively confident that after the end of this year, people will start buying more British food again because foreign food imports will probably be more expensive. And the thought that immediately leapt into my mind was, well, who is going to work on these farms? Who's going to pick the fruit? Who's going to pack the vegetables? These all used to be foreign farm workers. If they no longer can come to this country, that food is going to rot in the soil. So everything is piling on top of everything else. And I, I find it impossible to predict. I mean, I, I am temperamentally an optimist and I always think that somehow or other we'll find a way to muddle through. But God, it's more and more difficult these days, isn't it, to be optimistic? And we now know that unexpected events can hit us at any moment. So, no, I mean, if you if you want me to try and predict what we might be talking about a year from now, I'm not going to do it. Just not going to do it. It's a wise man. But you've got grandchildren. Come on. That's good. That That, that is a big, big plus. No, I mean, that that's gorgeous. I mean, I don't know what I would do if we didn't have the two little babes to keep us occupied. That's it. The future. It can't all be bad. Let, let's live in hope. And that's all for this FRDH podcast. My thanks to Robin Lustig for taking the time to speak with me. And you can hear more at the website, www.goldfarbpod.com. Please visit and make a donation to keep the podcasts coming. Thanks.